Welcome to the Performance Audit Report. My name's Conor McGarry. I'm Yusuf Muller. Today we're fortunate to have a special guest with us. He's the Auditor General of British Columbia in Canada, Mr. Michael Pickup. Michael, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Could we start off with a little bit about your professional background and then maybe tell us about your office? Sure. So I'm a professional accountant. I'm an FCPA and FCA, so accounting and auditing background. I've been Auditor General in British Columbia in year three of eight. Previous to this, I was Auditor General of Nova Scotia on the complete, nearly the complete other side of this large country, on the eastern side of the country. And before that, spent 25 years with the Auditor General of Canada, both in the financial audit and the performance audit experiences as well. So that's a little bit about my professional background. And certainly like to always mention that in addition to working in these audit offices, have enjoyed teaching at Canadian universities including Carleton University in Ottawa and the University of Ottawa as well, and always enjoy speaking at conferences on various topics. As far as the office, our headquarters, if there's any such thing anymore, post-pandemic, but our our headquarter building, uh, if you will, is in Victoria, British Columbia on Vancouver Island, which is the hour and a half ferry ride from the mainland of this very, very large province. And we have about 130 to 140 people. We do performance audits and we do financial audits. We are independent and we report directly to the legislature. And as long as we stay away from merits of policy and policy questions, we're quite independent to be able to pick what we want to audit on a performance audit front and then do our financial audits as well. Given the geographic vastness of Canada, you're currently in British Columbia and I previously you were under general in Nova Scotia. Are there any differences in the approaches or topics or way in which performance audit happens on those two sides of the country? Not a whole lot, really. I mean, we're all following the auditing and assurance standards set by the Auditing and Assurance Standards Board of Canada. You know, whether you're in the private sector or public sector, those standards are all the same. So the type of work we're doing, the standards that we're following are the same. And I forgot to mention, I just finished three years from 2017 to 2020 serving on Canada's Auditing and Assurance Standards Board. So very much a standards person, if you will, and appreciate all that goes into that. So no, The only difference I would say is that each jurisdiction will have particular perhaps mandate issues or particular things in relation to the Auditor General Act for that province. But for the most part, you know, the work is similar, how we approach it is similar, the reporting is similar. The mandates are relatively similar with small differences and nuances across the country. And presumably um, your office, Michael, would have some interaction with the Canadian Audit and Accountability Foundation as well. Yeah, I've been a strong participant and believer in the work that CAAF does, the foundation, some people will refer to it as. Personally, I've had opportunities to work in Africa through the foundation and with their work on performance auditing with some of the African countries that they were supporting. I have worked in Guyana on delivering training with that organization to people in Guyana as well, Thailand, and a whole host of other things. And actually, I just got appointed to the board, so I joined the board 
part of that organization in September. But besides what I do and, and my contributions to that organization as an office, we support what they do. And there's a fellowship program that way back when, when I worked for the Auditor General of Canada, actually, in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I was at a much more junior position, there was a person from Guyana who was up learning about audit and developing. And today he's Auditor General of Guyana and Biodad. So, and I'm Auditor General in BC. And we were office mates. We sat right next to each other. So actually they were here visiting and doing some work with our legislature here a couple of weeks ago. So I had a chance to see him a couple of weeks ago. So I'm a big, big supporter of the foundation. Fantastic. Just want to move on and talk about the changing role of performance auditing over the years, some of the challenges you're seeing, any innovation and delivery approaches. But maybe we'll start with the thorny issue that perhaps every performance audit team or every auditor general is facing, and that's the difficulty in recruiting staff. Can you talk to us a little bit about your experience? Sure. And the world certainly was challenging enough, I think, pre-pandemic. And the pandemic has obviously brought so many more challenges. So we want to keep people and retain them. And we need to recruit people as well. So on the retaining and recruiting front, certainly we've seen over the last six or seven months, some payoffs. And I hope it will become longer term. It's only six or seven months. But we've seen this year probably a 25% decrease in departures. So that is a good sign. And we're probably running, you know, 30% higher on our ability to attract people and recruit people as well. You know, give you an example, uh, we were recently recruiting for a position where, you know, two years ago, maybe we would have got five or 10 applicants. This time around, we got 90. I just hired an assistant auditor general. We had 15 applicants for an assistant auditor general. So, you know, I'm cautious though, because it's a, we're only six months or so into this fiscal year, but there are some signs that some of the things we're doing from a retaining folks and our recruiting approaches is having an impact. And one of the biggest things we're doing besides the interest of the work and the excitement of the work we're doing is what we call nature of work. So it's a beyond a hybrid approach to working. It is how somebody works in terms of their presence in a physical office versus working from home or working at an organization we audit is different for every single person. There's no one approach. We haven't mandated you have to be in X number of days. It's really individual by individual. It can change from time to time. So that is paying dividends for us and people staying. We've had people come back because this is probably more flexible than the rest of the public sector in Canada, probably more flexible than other audit offices as well. It would be hard to imagine more flexible than what we are doing. And I think we're starting to see the benefits of that. And I think we saw some of that even in our engagement scores this year, even during the pandemic. And the last time our staff survey was done was pre-pandemic before I got here in early 2000. The one we did this year, we saw roughly a 10% increase in overall engagement during a pandemic, which I I think is pretty remarkable. Long answer, I know, (laughs) to a very short question, but it it is just a topic that we could spend an hour talking just on that topic. 
Just one follow-up on that. It's really interesting, the issue of if you had some staff leave and then come back to the organisation, perhaps on the basis that there was that flexibility around how they wanted to work. Does that sort of indicate or suggest that it's an expectation more generally now that people have that flexibility as part of their job, even outside the auditing domain? I think we're looking at what works for us. And I think we are driving it by what is possible from a you know, personal work-life balance. So you notice I don't put work personal life balance. I put personal before work. We're not driving this by a necessarily a competitive strategy. We're not driving this by looking at necessarily what others are doing. We just started with a blank canvas and said, what could potentially work here? And in fact, you know, even though we're growing in numbers, we probably have grown by eight or 9% in terms of our total number of employees. We're going to be giving up over the next year, a quarter of our office space. So our footprint will be less. So it'll cost us less to run operations and less to impact upon a whole lot of things by being able to give up a quarter of our office space. Your recent annual report and your service plan details your priorities and strategies over the coming years. One gets a real sense of commitment to continuous improvement and innovation, trying new things. They seem to stand out as key values within your organization. Can you tell us a little bit more about those focus areas? Yeah, the way I like to focus and we like to focus here and something I hope I brought into the organization is when we're looking at innovation, we're thinking in a few ways. We are thinking people, right? And what are innovative ways to lead people? We're thinking of our products because we are people first and then products being delivered by people. How can we be innovative on people and products? And then how, what is our lens and how do we look at this from an internal perspective and an external perspective? So we're always thinking people, product, internal and external in terms of everything that we do. And in fact, our leadership group, sort of that top 15% of leaders in the office, we call P2F2. So think of that little R2-D2 character, perhaps, um, from Star Wars. But we're, we are P2F2, which are people and product, first and forward. So we're always thinking those two things are important. So any innovation we do is driving all of that. So, you know, if we wanted to look at sort of bucket of innovation, if you will, or bucket of ways of doing things, I think I would look at those buckets in terms of, you know, are you interested in hearing some of the buckets on people or on product, the internal focus or the external focus? And that's always the way we try to look at things here. Excellent. P2F2, coming to a galaxy near you soon. Yeah, (laughs) coming to audit you soon. (laughs) (laughs) Sticking with your three-year plans, we note that you recently discontinued the practice of publishing a plan that goes out to three years. Can you tell us a little bit more about the reason for that decision? Yeah, sure. So so this is what we would call our performance audit coverage plan. That wasn't required by any uh, legislation. It was uh, a desire to put something out there to indicate what we might be working on over the three years on the performance audit. So what I found when I got here and started going through all those performance audit coverage plans is because of the length of time performance audit takes, because of the changing environment, environment, changing priorities, that a number of the things that were on those performance audit coverage plans weren't getting done 
they weren't getting done, probably for very valid reasons. There were different risks. There were different places to put things. So we were spending way too much time, in my view, trying to explain to people externally and trying to, you know, refocus off of these documents internally. When I said, let's have a shorter planning focus than three years. Let's just, you know, announce audits. So we still announce audits, let's, but let's announce audits when we know we are actually going to do them. And I think it, it created sort of expectations, rightly so. It created expectations, I think, with the public and those who report to in the legislature to say, you put out this performance audit coverage plan. You said you were going to do this audit for this year. Why aren't you doing that? So you can just imagine the effort that could go into explaining all of these back and forth. So what we've ended up doing, I think, is a more reasonable, balanced approach that as soon as we're done the planning and we know something is going to move forward, probably still a year out in terms of when the audit will report, we put that on our website. People can learn a little bit about the audit and we do a release video where we will do an announcement video where I will explain in 30 or 40 seconds that we're doing this audit and what the audit is about. And, you know, the world we live in, I think, People are more able to focus in on that which is in the next year better than that which is in year two or year three. So that was really the driving force for doing that. Just wanted to get an understanding of what your audit officer's journey has been, where you are now, and where you think you're going in terms of the use of data within performance audit. It's one of those things I think we're always going to be talking about as an auditor and as an audit office. First and foremost, I think when we are doing audit planning, we need to have good discussions around how data analytics or any of these types of things that we might put under the umbrella of data, how that will actually assist us with our mandate and with the audit objectives and what we're trying to do. So we want to be careful that we aren't consultants, right? And we're not trying to write 100-page management letters and come up with every suggestion possible. And we're doing audits. Yes, we're telling a story around that audit, but we're not trying to provide people with every piece of information that they can possibly get. And with the changing uh, world that we live in, and so much more information I think is available from those that we are auditing that is already provided. So on the scope of an audit, we want to look at whether we can use data at the planning stage. We spend probably a third of our time roughly on the planning phase of an audit. So looking at can we use some of these tools and trying to figure out what some of the risks are, looking at some of the controls as well. And then when we get into the audit itself, looking at what makes sense, but always wanting to be careful that we're not just spending time on this because we can and because we know how, and we know how to do this and the data is there. I think on data, you know, visualization and presentation of data in the audits. I, th I think that's an area, and we're having discussions on this now, I think that's an area that we'll want to improve upon and get a plan forward to say, what are some things that we're doing that make sense and what might we want to do differently? And part of that, I think, is having some outreach and an engagement with those that are using and reading our reports 
So what are some ways to present information that might be different? Because, you know, we're auditors at the end of the day and we know the subjects and we know what we're talking about, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the data visualization or presentation or use of data is really helping to explain the audit and how we made the conclusions that we did. So so I think there is still more to do there and we'll be looking at investing a little more time in coming up with strategies, not only from the product perspective, but from the people perspective as well. How comfortable are people with using this and doing this type of stuff? What level of sophistication do we want and have at a generalist level for everybody to have? What is that sort of baseline that is a minimum for everybody to be able to do? What is the intermediate level and what is the advanced level? And we have IT type of specialists with us on the performance side who can do some of that more sophisticated. But I think probably what was sophisticated 10 years ago is not sophisticated today. And there's certainly that shift where everybody has to be able to do a certain level. And I think we're we're probably running that in parallel at the same time with our financial uh, audit practice as well, where it becomes fairly commonplace on financial audits to incorporate this. So we're always looking to also ask those types of questions. Are there things we're doing on the financial audit practice that can be brought over to the performance audit practice and should be brought over? And does some of this make sense as well? That makes sense to make sure that the way in which you're approaching the use of data is based on the audit objective, which is typically what we write down as the audit objective in our scope and our reporting. And then there's the objective of the audit, meaning what do we want to achieve out of the audit, which includes the way in which we're going to report. And so I imagine when you talk about using data for the right objective, it's about both there to get to that result. Yeah, yeah. And thinking about that, I guess I'm pulling that to sort of a next step. I think about my time in Nova Scotia, right? I mean, clearly our goal and our mandate was to provide audits, performance audits, among other things, to the elected folks in the legislature. So they could use these reports to hold government accountable. So when people say, well, you hold government accountable. No, we give information to the elected people through audit that they can choose to use how they see fit to hold government accountable. So there is that little bit of nuance. So if I think of who we're reporting to, and I think of my time in Nova Scotia, where often we would see our audit reports being used in question period in the parliament, and you could just see that direct impact, if you will, and usefulness of the information. So in Nova Scotia, I can remember we did a lot of information where we pulled information and presented it rather than in the big numbers, you know, the 12 billion in expenses, we brought it down to a person level. So the every Nova Scotian is using $4,800 worth of medical care, $16,700 of the provincial debt, is owned by each person if you divide it up. That was very effective to allow elected people to be able to use the report to ask government questions. So, for example, we did that with education. We say, okay, 
you know, the number of students in the province has gone down, the cost of education has gone up this much, what are we getting for that, what are the results that are related to that. So I could see that being very effective. Now to the second part that was inherent in your question goes to the other impacts or outcomes or things that can happen as a result of these audits. I guess we always want to think that the people that are undergoing these performance audits, these organizations, obviously they know the program, they know what they're doing better than we do coming into audits. So presumably when we write these reports, they're fairly well understood by those that we are auditing. So we've got to think about the presentation or the data that we're using and saying, okay, is this helping people in the legislature do their job? Is this necessary and going to help the people that we're auditing in terms of the recommendations that we're making and them implementing the recommendations as a secondary purpose or objective or outcome or impact? But remember that we're not doing these audits to come up with as many recommendations as we can to see these changes. That is secondary to our primary objective. Now, in reality, it's why many of us do these jobs, right? Yes, it's great to give the elected members these tools, but we do like to see positive changes happen. When I arrived in Nova Scotia as Auditor General in 2014, we followed up on our recommendations and 50% of the recommendations were completed by government within two years post-audit. When I left in six years later in 2020, that number had gone up to 75%. So three quarters of things were done within the two years. We didn't take credit for it as an audit office, you know, gave credit to those who were implementing the recommendations. But it was a gauge for me to say we were probably in a pretty good spot in terms of how we were writing these recommendations of things we were coming up with, that they actually made sense and they were being implemented as well. I think you spoke about this briefly, but in terms of performance auditors using data, is the preference to have a central team that supports the performance audit team with data analysis, or do you see a time where all performance auditors will be doing the work themselves, or at least have some level of capability? Where we are now is within our performance audit group, we have some specialists. They're called the IT audit team. Not that creative, I guess, but we come up with the name IT audit team for people who are doing IT audits. Maybe we need a catchier name for the group. But these specialists are housed within the performance audit group, and they are helping on performance audits, but also on the financial audit practice as well, where we're doing control environment type stuff. But the idea is over time that the level of comfort individual auditors who are more generalist of nature have a level of knowledge that maybe 10 years ago might have been thought of as something a little more sophisticated, but I think there has to be that basic level. I think if we look at the complexity of what government is doing and government's use of data and information as well, you know, really in order to keep up um, we'll need to have that level. And that will mirror the, the financial audit practice, which is where it has probably been faster pace of that happening and because you know financial uh, accounting and transactions have just become so, so uh, computerized that you have to have a level of knowledge and comfort. I think the performance audit practice will increasingly catch up um, over time. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the things your office does to maximize the impact of performance audits? 
Some of it is definitional and talking the same language as to what uh, impact is, right? So I think we always have to think about what we're aiming to do is to provide that independent uh, assurance to the elected folks to the legislature based on the audit objective. So it's not, we're not being driven by how many changes we can see made in government programs. We're not trying to get policies implemented. We're not trying to get policies changed. We're staying in our lane here in terms of what we're trying to do. So we've got to watch the word impact in terms of what does that mean? So I always tell folks, our impact is not about how many TV news shows I'm on and how many interviews I do. It's not about how many bad headlines we can make, right? It's about the quality and types of information that we are providing to elected people. So measuring that impact, I think, includes surveying the elected folks to talk about the impact we're having on them in terms of how they are doing their work and how we're helping them doing their work. And of course, like I said earlier, probably why many of us do these jobs is the hope that the recommendations we make that get accepted in probably 99.9% of the cases in Canada, where those we ought to accept the recommendations that we do see. To be quite frank, I was very happy when I left Nova Scotia as Auditor General to say three quarters of what we recommended was done within two years. So I remember one of the last interviews I did on probably in the week before I left down there on one of the news talk radio shows, a person started with, Auditor General, you must be very frustrated that all these recommendations and nothing ever gets done. And I'm like, that's not true. You know, in, in fairness to the government, they're getting three quarters of things done. So there is that stuff that we see that we have to call it, we can call it impacts, but just being cautious that that's not what's driving us to look for those types of changes. One of the techniques that you and your office employ is the use of videos, and you touched on it briefly in the context of a short video at the commencement of a performance audit, just to set the scene. Can you talk us through what was the driver to use that technique of communication and what has the feedback been like to that? Sure. So we brought that in here. I started that in Nova Scotia when I went there in 2014. And post that, it's probably become fairly common now in Canada for audit offices to do that in a variety of ways. But really what drove me there was just seeing the variety of users that we had, the different demographics of elected folks that, you know, not everybody read a report from page one to page 35, seeing how busy elected people were, right, and their need to consume some information, seeing the media who we relied on to get our messages out as well and seeing how busy they were. And so I thought it would be a way of doing these videos to get the message out more broadly across the media as well as to the elected folks and I think the everyday people. The other thing that I thought it would do that it has done is um, it allows us in a short period, like if I do a video on an audit results and it's two minutes, it is the result of the audit, the good, the bad, the other. 
right? So it's not just we're picking out, here's where they really did poorly, here's where they failed on the criteria. No, it is the balanced report that supports the conclusion. So if the conclusion was positive, what, what, what will come in the video will be mainly positive with whatever recommendations. If it was a fail report, you know, they didn't meet the audit objective, then what, what I will lay out in the video will, will support that. So I think the videos have expanded the messaging. So I can think in, in Nova Scotia, I'd be driving to work and I could hear my voice before I changed the channel on the radio. And I think I didn't do that interview. I don't remember doing that interview with them. No, no, they were picking things up from videos. Right. And then what we would see our nationals started taking the videos and embedding them on their home pages. Right. And because they, they, it was very easy for people to consume. We try to the extent auditors can, I think, to make it plain language. I think at the end of the day, it, it is audit. And then here we also decided to use it for announcements of audits, probably in 30 seconds or, or 40 seconds. And I was taping one earlier today, I think it's 30 or 40 seconds, where we announce the subject of the audit as well. So th these videos have gone over, gone over really well with folks to get them interested and it has expanded. I could talk more about some of our communication stuff because it, it's such an area of interest for me, but uh, maybe I'll pause there. And if you want to hear about the one-pagers, I can tell you about the one-pagers as well. We'd love to hear about the one-pagers, but if I could just squeeze in one follow-up question sure. there, and that's your videos, are they consumed more regularly now when a report's been completed? So the findings and the conclusion, those two-minute videos, are they consumed more now than the actual report might be that's on your website? Oh, I, I would say for sure. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And that is why it's important, I think, for those videos to be all encompassing as something can be in two minutes, <laughs> right? It, it, it has to be fair and balanced. It has to really reproduce the main message from the audit. So yeah, I would suggest that is the case. And interesting, like we'll, we will do videos and other things, or we'll do social media postings. And we get as much interest, in addition to the audits, is to the how we sort of live and work at the Office of the Auditor General. So I think if we post something like our attendance in the Pride Parade this year here in Victoria, that gets as much or more interest than audit, which is great because I think it is helping us with recruitment because people are seeing some of the values that we have and how we actually live those values. And that's working in favor as well. Fantastic. Well, we might have to have another podcast about the comm strategies, but <laughs> we'd be interested to hear about the one pagers you referenced there. So this is, you know, if there's one thing that I think has been our greatest achievement is something we started in Nova Scotia when I was Auditor General, and we've incorporated here. And many, if not most, of all audit offices now in Canada uh, have incorporated this, and it's the kind of thing that they get me into national conferences to speak about, are these what we call audit at a glance or one-pagers. And essentially, it is the entire audit, the why it's important, the audit objective, the conclusion, and then sort of what we found. So on one piece of paper, Somebody can see essentially the entire audit. All of the feedback I have received is this was a real game changer for elected people, for the media. And we will often see these totally reprinted. 
or we'll see people ask the questions. Oh, those are good questions. But essentially, it's the one pager. And I remember when I went to Nova Scotia as, as the Auditor General and suggested this and talked about this, and many people said it wasn't possible. You know, and I said, well, what if it is possible? What if we can do it? So roll forward eight years, and this is pretty common practice now. So continuing on with the one pagers, we noticed a really interesting technique that I think you include and content that you include in on the one pager or at least in some of the short form reports. And that's where you basically say, and I quote here, after reading the report, you may want to ask the following questions of government. And then you'll set out three questions. Mm-hmm. So we haven't seen that approach very often elsewhere. Can you just talk to us the thinking behind that approach, posing those questions, I guess, directly to the reader? Yeah, sure. And we started that in Nova Scotia and it was funny because, and I didn't have anything to do with it and didn't know anything about it, but all of a sudden I'm reading an editorial in the main newspaper that talks about how innovative this is and how uh, helpful journalists found this. And it was academics, I think, that wrote the editorial to say, this is kind of like auditing meets some sort of reasonable modern journalism. And it was all very sort of favorable as to what we were doing. But the idea was really, this is, in my mind, as as far as we push it, of staying in the safe lane and staying in our mandate to suggest some things perhaps that start to go a little bit beyond the audit that people may want to think about asking their government that perhaps uh, it's not things that would be a part of the audit. So if it's something we should have done as part of the audit, well, then it should be in the audit and it should be in the report. It kind of takes it to that next step and does push it. And, And what I have found is that as well at times, although this wasn't the driving force, this was about questions the public may want to ask. But at times, I've seen elected people ask these questions as well at committee and say, okay, I'm going to ask these questions. So I think it certainly was trying to be a little more assertive, a little more pushy, if you will, on where we stop at that point. Okay, really interesting technique. A few recent reports that we've seen, one of them is around the management of medical device cybersecurity at the Provincial Health Services Authority. What is it that made you go in to have a look at specifically medical device cybersecurity? It's not something we see very often. I mean, cybersecurity, obviously, is such a big topic. And I think very often we probably on cybersecurity think of governance as a logical starting point and say, okay, let's start with a board or let's start at that high level. So I think generally that would probably be an approach we would take. But on this one, we decided, okay, this this is a major area. Right, medical devices. It's something tangible, a little more concrete. We all understand governance if we're in this business. We understand the importance of governance. A lot of times, I think you know, governance types audits audits come up with a lot of great conclusions, a lot of great recommendations, but often similar in principle or substance at the underlying issue. So, this medical devices was an opportunity one to pick something that was inherently very important within the province, obviously, an area. Where 
where there has probably been in the health sector cybersecurity issues, both in Canada and in other countries in the area of health. And so we did decide to pick something a little more um, concrete that would be understandable to people. People could see the impact, people could see the significance and importance of it. Another report on major mines. So this was an environmental report, and the title is Oversight of Major Mines, Policies and Procedures to Address Environmental Risks. And something that you said in there is, with the movement to net zero, mines will be closing sooner, and there will remain some environmental cleanup risks. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? The importance of doing that audit really goes back a number of years. It probably does go back to 2016, that predates me. So there was an audit in 2016 with really, you know, some awful findings in it, right? Some significant deficiencies of things that weren't happening and a number of recommendations. So while we didn't do a sort of pure follow-up of that 2016 audit, we did come in and look to say, okay, some of the key risks in this area, let's go back and and have a look as to whether these things have been addressed, giving the significance. So rather than picking any one particular aspect of it, we said, okay, let's let's look at policies and procedures and whether these things have been implemented. So and what we found obviously was that yes, they've done a lot of work and a lot of this has been done. You know, there's still work to be done, but that really was that opportunity to I loosely say follow-up because it wasn't a pure follow-up of a previous audit, but it really was readdressing and coming back and looking at an issue that was significant in the past. And we are going to start now in 2023. We are going to start following up every audit we did going back three years and doing a report to the legislature on whether those recommendations that were made have been completed or not completed. So that will be the first time for the Auditor General's Office in British Columbia for us to be doing this. There are two main questions I get asked as Auditor General. It was the same in Nova Scotia. It's the same in British Columbia. How do you pick the audits you do? What happens after? Do you make all these recommendations? What happens after? So this follow-up report that we're going to be doing starting in 2023 will help answer that question as to what happens to all of these recommendations once we leave. You appointed an equity, diversity, and inclusion lead, a very senior person appointed to that lead role, being the Deputy Auditor General. So what that suggests to us is it's very important to you and to your office. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. And it, it is very important to me. And, you know, uh, I could do a, a, a whole sort of show just on equity, uh, diversity uh, and inclusion, and certainly would be happy to talk more. But if I can kind of scope it down for you, uh, if you will. Yeah, super important to me for a whole bunch of reasons, um, partially because I, I am Indigenous and I'm status Indian in Canada and, and come from that group, uh, which is a whole fascinating um, story from my mother being Indigenous, so very important to me. Um, I'll be Canada's first Indigenous Auditor General, although we don't put that anywhere and don't make a big deal about it, but obviously it's part of who I am. BNG, LBTQI as well. 
just very important to me as well. So it's who I am, it's what I am uh, that I bring into this uh, as the Auditor General. Working for 30-some years, certainly recognize the importance of diversity uh, and inclusion. So, so when I came here, one of the things that I did that we're now rolling out to our entire leadership group is I got an educator from Cornell University uh, with a Certificate of Diversity and Inclusion, a four-course program. Now we've put all of our leaders through that program as well, so everybody is on the same page. Very pleased that after last week and a couple of appointments, um, the executive team, the executive group, the five people that report to me are now four women, people who identify as women and one man. We have uh, the six of us, somebody who is Black, somebody who is Indigenous, two people, people born outside of the country, people who've lived across the world, people who've lived across this country. Uh, I would suggest, uh, not to be audited, but I would suggest we're probably at that executive level, the most diverse organization, uh, probably in Canada, I would suggest certainly at the audit level. And and so very pleased with that. Uh, and I think what we're seeing now as we work on inclusion, this is helping us retain people. This is certainly helping us um, with recruitment, but it also is being reflected in what we audit. So we are auditing now the diversity and inclusion of the government to see um, they have a plan, they have an approach. We're auditing that, doing a performance audit on that now that we will report on in March to see how well they are doing on diversity and inclusion. So to me, diversity and inclusion is not only how you run the organization, but you send messages by what you audit as well. We're also doing an audit now on mental health and corrections focused on our Indigenous population. Indigenous people make up 4% of BC. Indigenous people make up 40% of the people in correctional facilities. So 4%. Population, 40%. So we're doing an audit on that now. So so that is part of diversity and inclusion as well. So those are some sort of quick highlights that maybe weren't that quick, but certainly something that is, is very important to me uh, and to others in here as well. So Michael, we're in the home stretch now with a final question. But before we get to that, I'm sorry, I'm going to throw back one of your quotes to you. And then follow up with a question. So you said in a recent hearing of your Legislative Committee on Finance and Government Services where you said, I strongly believe in investing in building, not only for today, but for the future as well. So our on-the-spot question to you is, what will the performance auditor of the future look like? Oh, good, good question. So, so I think that, you know, a performance auditor of the future, I think of the number one qualities I would look for in a performance auditor, and it doesn't necessarily mean that that trait has changed, but I would suggest perhaps that that trait may be more challenging to find is intellectual curiosity. You know, people who make good performance auditors are those people who may just seem like the biggest pain if you're teaching a class or if you're a parent or if you, you know, have friends that are like that. It's those people who ask all of those um, types of questions. So I always look for that. And I'm sure outside of here, and, you know, and I include myself in this, those of us who are performance auditors and who are good at this, I'm sure drive people in our personal lives crazy because I know I've recently heard can we just go in and out of that car dealership without you turning it into a performance audit 
right? Like you don't really need to be auditing them. I'm like, yeah, you know, you can't necessarily shut this off. So I think the performance audit of the future needs to have that. They need to be with it in terms of technology and not just be able to use Instagram and TikTok, um, but be, to be able, particularly if they're coming from uh, disciplines outside of accounting where you may, you may learn things related to technology and how to use some of these tools. I think no matter what your discipline is, if you come into performance audit, you're going to have to have that ability to use technology. You're going to have to have the ability to collaborate with people, to work together. And I think it's one of the areas to watch and risks to watch as we move to more isolated, in some cases, hybrid type of working to say we don't want to lose people's ability to collaborate. I think the performance auditor of the future has to really keep the eye too on the mandate and the purpose and the objective of what we're doing, particularly as we look to performance auditors who are not accountants, who are very well educated, who are passionate about their area of discipline, right? No matter what that discipline is, that's part of why they have a master's degree or a PhD or whatever other kind of education they have. But realizing that when you come into an audit office, you're not here to develop policy and not to be frustrated. So you have to have that ability to be adaptable, I think, and to be able to say, okay, as a performance auditor, I have to understand my role. I look for agility. Those people who can say, okay, we're in a pandemic. Look how many pandemic-related audits we did. We did an information report September 2020. We had the first pandemic-related report out in Canada. That was by being agile. If I look at some of the other pandemic-related audits we put out, again, it's that agility, which is different than being adaptable. So those, I think, are some of the traits I would think of as the performance auditor of the future, maybe it's of the present <laughs> as well. Fantastic insights there. Look, that takes us to the end of the show. Michael, where can people find out a little bit more about your office and the work that you guys do? Yeah, so the oag.bc.ca, and that stands for Office of the Auditor General, <laughs> British Columbia, and .ca. So yeah, so it's all on the website. And of course, we have a YouTube channel as well, where all the videos are on there. We're on Instagram, we're on Facebook. We're not on TikTok yet. <laughs> Although I keep trying to encourage folks to think about TikTok, even from a recruitment aspect, if it's not from a getting the performance audit message out. I think a, a P2F2 dance on TikTok might be a yeah. winner. winner. Uh, you know what? I'm going to bring that suggestion to our, <laughs> to, to our next get-together. Sure. Good idea. <laughs> Michael, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for your time and insights. And I reckon we'll have to regroup at some stage in the future to tease out some of those other matters we didn't get to today. Sure. Happy to. So thank you for your time and interest. And all the best. The Performance Audit Report is produced by PA Reports the Performance Audit Research Division of Risk Insights. PA Reports helps streamline and accelerate your performance audit research, bringing to you relevant insights that can help your audit get off the ground faster.